Welcome to Looking Forward, where we speak with experts about marketplace and societal trends, and most importantly, how they might affect you. I'm Jeff Ostroff, the host of Looking Forward. If you're like me, you're fascinated by trends in the future. In fact, several years ago, that was one of the things I focused on in a book I wrote. Hi, everyone. Today on Looking Forward, we're going to take a look at research and trends in early childhood development. So if you have a preschooler at home or know someone who does, you'll definitely want to listen in. Our guest today is an expert on such matters. She's Dr. Roberta michnik Golenkoff. Roberta Golenkoff is a Ph.D. and the Unit L.H. Rodney Sharp Professor of Education, Psychological and Brain Sciences, and Linguistics and Cognitive Science at the University of Delaware. She's also the director of the Child's Play Learning and Development Laboratory at UD. Roberta's received numerous prestigious awards for her work, including the American Psychological Association's Distinguished Service Award and the Yuri Bronfen Brenner Award for Lifetime Contribution to Developmental Psychology in the Service of Science and Society. Dr. Golenkoff's research has been funded by the National Science Foundation, the National Institutes of Health, the Institute of Education Sciences, and the Lego Foundation. In addition to over 200 journal publications and book chapters, she has authored 16 books and monographs, passionate about the dissemination of psychological science for improving our schools and family lives. She and Hirsch Pasek, her long-standing collaborator, also write books for parents and practitioners. Roberta's books include How Babies Talk, the award-winning Einstein Never Used Flashcards, and her latest book, Becoming Brilliant, What Science Tells Us About Raising Successful Children, which reached the New York Times bestseller list in 2016. Dr. Golenkoff lectures internationally about language development, playful learning, spatial development, and the impacts of media on young children. She co-founded the Playful Learning Landscapes Movement, whose goal it is to transform cities to promote the well-being of children and families. She has also appeared on numerous radio and television shows and in print media. Well, hi, Roberta. Welcome to Looking Forward. Hello. How you doing, Jeff? Great. It's nice to see you again. Roberta, I know that for many years you've focused on the education and development of young children. You've done that as a researcher, a professor, an author, speaker. What was it that got you so deeply interested and involved in how preschool children learn and develop? Was this something as a young child you were interested in, as a college student? When did it first hit you that this is something you wanted to make your life's passion? All I could say is I've loved little kids. And I grew up in Brooklyn. And I remember uh, when I was a kid, the moms would uh, sit outside on like beach chairs. This was not a fancy community. And they would have their babies in their baby carriages. And when I was a kid, I would like beg to walk the kid in their baby carriage. When I think of it now, I think, you know, why would I do that? You know, rather than running around and playing on my own, which I did plenty of too. (laughs) Okay. But so it's kind of from the beginning that I've been interested in kids and they are an unending source of wonder for me. And I can tell the listeners, I've seen Roberta speaking and when she says that they are a sense of wonder to her, folks, she really means it. She projects passion <laughs> in any talk she gives about the subject of young children. 
Now, Roberta, looking forward tends to focus on the future. That's why we have that name. But at the same time, in order to do that, we first need to look a little bit backwards. If you could share with our listeners your perspectives on how our understanding of young children has evolved over the past several decades. You can begin with Dr. Spock or not, you know, whatever you want to talk. How has it changed? This is something I saw the other day in a video that back in the 40s, 50s, 60s, people didn't even appreciate how sensitive little babies are in interactions with their parents. And a guy named Ed Tronick, uh, a researcher in Massachusetts, invented what we call the still face. And that is, you first interact with a baby as you ordinarily would. Picture a baby in a, one of those car seat things, you know, or, or those infant seats. So you, you play with the baby and you say all the silly things you say. And then suddenly at the experimenter's urging, you go completely flat in your face. You're looking at the baby, but you're not responding. And you're not picking up on any of the cues the baby is sending you away for how I want to play. This is tremendously upsetting to babies who have typical moms who pick up on their signals. After that goes on for two minutes, they're two-minute segments, then they have what they call a reunion when the mother starts to be animated again and play with the baby. And Edtronic said when he first started his research, it was extremely surprising to people that a baby as young as five months of age would show the kind of distress that they showed when the mother went flat, that they picked up on it, they hated it, they would arch their back, they would reach out, they would make noises, they would do everything they could to get the mother to respond. Nowadays, in the science, as well as in the Western world, we kind of take for granted that babies have feelings and that Babies are very sensitive to the nuances in our interactions with them. So I would have to say it all began in the late 60s and 70s when the methodology and how we studied children changed. Some of that had to do with videotape. We never had videotape before right. then, right? right? I don't know if you remember this, but we had the reel-to-reel stuff. Oh, I lived with that right? as a kid. I love the reel-to-reel. Right. So videotape has changed it a lot and instrumentation that makes it easier for us to figure out what babies are looking at and how they're responding. So when I started in graduate school, for example, there was something called the rust track event recorder that would literally scrape off pieces from a, a waxed tape when you press the button to indicate the baby was looking at something. That was like the dark ages, the dark <laughs> ages. Now we can videotape or we can have somebody in another room coding what the baby is looking at by pressing a button. And it, it tells us so much about what sure. babies know and think. You know, that's fascinating because what you've pointed to here is the research that's helping us better understand these very young children, babies, basically. Yeah. And yeah. technology, technology really opened up the door there to that greater understanding. I never yeah. would have thought of that, Roberta, that the videotape 
would allow us to study them better. Yes, um, yes. We invented a method here at the University of Delaware with my longtime colleague, Kathy Hirsch-Pasek, who teaches at Temple that has now been adopted all over the world. Picture like a 35-inch TV screen, a big TV screen, and imagine that it's divided down the middle, split screen. We see this technique used all the time in the news. And on the left side of the screen, you may have a picture of a boat. On the right side, you may have a pair of shoes. And we invented this method because when we say, find the shoes, where's the shoes? We can get babies as young as six months of age to look at the object that matches what they're being asked for. The fancy name for this method is the intermodal preferential looking paradigm. (laughs) You don't have to remember it, but... That is now in laboratories all over the world because it enables us to ask children whether they can find the match between what we say and what they're seeing. And we can use it with sentences as well, not just with individual words. So our appreciation of children's language development has just soared in the past 50 years. Wow, that's really fascinating again. So if we move up to present times, but let's leave COVID out for the moment. It's before COVID. Where would you say we are now in terms of our understanding, Roberta, of how preschool children learn and function at their best? And is your feeling about that and your reflection of what you think societal feelings are about that pretty much universally accepted, or is there still some controversy about it? Oh my, there's tremendous opportunity for us to influence the public in how they think about how children learn best. I am one of the, I don't even know what my title is, co-directors, I don't know, of the Child and Family blog, Mm. and that shares information. And I also routinely blog for the Brookings Institution, because my colleague Kathy is a senior fellow. And we're always trying to get the word out. Because it is often the case, as you might imagine, that the science runs ahead of what the public knows. And without getting political, there has also been a downgrading of science in our country, which I hope will be seriously reduced under the new administration. It's very important for us to work back and forth with the public, not just to tell them stuff, but to take the problems that they encounter with their own children and the questions they have and to use that agenda to shape our research. After all, our research is shaped by the public's tax dollars from grants. So it's very important for us to have this kind of dialogue. Children are tremendously capable. They love to learn. I don't care whether you're raised in a tent, in a teepee, in a high rise, or in a mansion. You come in wanting to learn. And we have principles that we can use to help us help children learn. After, again, like 50 years of research and learning science, we just have to get them out there. Yes. And are those principles that you're referring to, Roberta, pretty much accepted by a majority of those who are in the scientific community and in the early yes, childhood I would development say community? So. I would say so. Would so, say so. The first is that children learn best when they're active, not mm. passive. So 
you want to help your child discover things with your help. Of course, they're going to ask you questions and you're going to give them answers. But sometimes it's not so bad to throw the question back at them. Yeah, let them think, and right? And see what they come up with. Exactly right. Exactly right. Because yeah. we know when you're active, you learn more. The second principle is that learning works best when it's meaningful. That is, when it links up to your own life. So, you know, you can teach kids about death and taxes, but you're not going to get too far. <laughs> when you start to teach them about the natural world that they encounter every day, when you engage in baking with them, then, then you're on their wavelength. And then they can link up what they learn with you to things they already know. You also want learning to be engaging and not distracting. And some of the new electronic apps that are around haven't learned this message yet. You want the child to be focusing on the big idea and not being distracted by the pop-up in the book. For example, you know, we, we all buy our grandkids gifts, right? And there are these books that you open them and something pops up, you know, <laughs> it turns out if you want to use those books to teach vocabulary or, or, or letter recognition, they're not as effective as books that have fewer bells and whistles. We know this from research. Wow. So you want it to be engaging, but not distracting because kids don't know where to direct their interest if there's too much happening. And finally, we know that learning works best when it's socially interactive. It doesn't mean you can't learn stuff on your own, but when you're learning in school, even little guys learn best when they have to work together on projects. And when parents work with kids in the most natural way to do blocks, to play games, this is, this is how kids learn. The social interaction matters tremendously because we are born social humans. Immediately, we want contact. That is so helpful. And we're going to have you come back to that in a little bit here. But that's great information already. So helpful for people who have young children or grandparents who are helping to either raise young children or, or at least help take care of them or socialize with them. Now we're going to move to the current day. And I'm going to ask you, from your perspective, what impact has COVID-19 had on the development of preschool children, Roberta? You know, when we were first all in lockdown and we were even reluctant to go outside, it's hard on kids. Kids have a ton of energy and they need to expend it or else they're going to drive us crazy, right? Right. So little by little, it's loosened up, although clearly given the current statistics, it's loosened up way too much. And our data show that COVID is on the rise. Anytime there's any kind of natural disaster, who suffers most? Poor kids. I don't care what it is. Poor kids suffer mm. most. Yeah. So the middle class kids who've been bottled up at home with their parents, their parents, by the way, who often have the luxury of staying home because they have the kinds of jobs where they're using their minds and they don't have to have direct interaction with other humans. But those people we call the essential workers, and we're still calling them that, yes. who actually work in the grocery stores, who are the nurses in the doctor's office. And I don't mean to suggest that they aren't brilliant people using their minds, too. 
It's just that their jobs require interaction. So who took care of those kids when parents had to go to work? I guess they found relatives. Many of the daycares were closed and still are. And children who stayed home with their middle-class educated parents, even they have lost ground now because they've been out of school for six months and more. But poor kids, it's hurt them even more. So there's a concept that we call the summer slide or the summer slump. And that describes what happens to children from disadvantaged homes who are not in school during the summer. Their scores in reading and in math, etc., decline, while the scores of middle-class kids don't decline as much because they get read to, they get taken places. If you don't know where your next meal is coming from and you're struggling to keep your job, which is, I mean, this is COVID writ large, and you might not have enough to pay the rent, you know, you're not thinking about where you're going to take your kid for amusement. So the summer slide we knew just the two months out of school had a big impact on poor kids, not so much on middle-class kids. But now we talk about the COVID slump Mm. because all kids have been out of school for at least six months. Some schools are back in session in a reduced way. Some schools are happening over Zoom, but all children have probably lost some ground now relative to where they would have been. And once again, poor children have lost more. During the height of the pandemic, which started in March and school was still on, and schools went electronic, fully 40% of children in America never signed on to receive electronic lessons Mm. of various types. What does that mean? It means that those families were struggling. They may not have had the digital technology. And even if they had it, they may not have had the bandwidth, the internet that they need. Internet now is like water. It should be everywhere. It's essential. So those kids whose parents were really struggling and who might not have had the devices or the bandwidth never signed on. So we know that there's probably been a bigger gap Then the summer slide for sure, because this is six months for low income kids who were not getting on then and who probably didn't have the greatest, most stimulating summer, given that their parents were so stressed about what was going to happen next. Wow. Profound effects. That's a perfect segue, Roberta, into having you speculate a little bit, but it's wise speculation based on your know-how. And that is... As we think about young children, whether they are from impoverished homes, which you've clearly pointed out have the greatest risks and challenges, or those who are not from impoverished homes, what do you think is going to be the long-term impact on those children? And we're going to assume, and it's a big assumption, that maybe a year from now, things are more normal again. From your mouth to God's ears. Yeah, I know. I hope. So what do you think is going to be the long-term impact created by this gap that you're talking about? And are there any other new developments or trends in how we raise young children that will come out of this, maybe even some of them good ones? Please address those two things. 
when kids go back to school for real, now it's happening in some places, but they're still discouraged from interacting closely with other kids. When kids go back, the thing that I would hate to see is pressure on the children to pick up the stuff that they missed. I think expectations will need to be adjusted because children will need to spend a lot of time interacting and playing with peers because they have been stifled now for such a long time from being able to do that. Social interaction is so important. And if you don't have siblings and if you are locked in the house and you can't play with kids in your own age group, you may well have social skills that could need a little work. And the only way to get those is by playing. The only way to recover your motivation for learning is to be taught in a gentle and kind way that isn't putting pressure on you. It's not the kid's fault that they missed out, say, on third grade, you know? So we really, really have to think hard about what kinds of demands we're going to put on our kids and how we're going to take into consideration the fact that they need a safe space to engage with other children in that they haven't had that much. So things will be different. I don't want to say that there will be long-term damage that can never be undone in that the children who were alive through the pandemic are doomed and no one will ever go to Harvard, you know, no, no, no. (laughs) Um, Let alone, you know, high school. We don't want to think that way. And children are tremendously resilient. So I don't think that's going to be an issue, but we really do have to think about how to get them back involved with thinking about the kinds of things that happen in school and how to get along with their peers, which they've missed out on for a long time. Along those lines, Roberta, do you think that most of those children will be able to, I'll use the phrase, catch up? At oh, least, sure. You think sure. They would, it's just going to take time. It's just going to take time. They would be able to. And the online yeah. learning aspect of this, there are some institutions of higher learning, not what we're talking about, for whom online learning is now going to become even more likely, right, more prevalent. Yes. But in terms of the younger children, not the case, right? You don't see online, or what what do you see with online? So unfortunately, it is the case that there are companies that are trying to push online preschool. That's a joke. That's a joke. How are you going to fight over those crayons? You got to fight (laughs) over the crayons. You got to learn to take turns. You got to learn to negotiate. And you have to learn how to be nice to other kids and and how to share and how to create together. And so online preschool to me is a joke and I would never support it. There are companies that are trying to sell online learning. Achievement for children who participate in those schools is quite poor. Mm. And again, we need to create humans who are caring, collaborative, and social creatures, that's not going to happen in online schooling. Now, by the time you get to college, it's a different story. As you know, I'm a professor of longstanding at the University of Delaware, and I am offering my courses over Zoom. And I can tell you, I'm having a great time. (laughs) How could that be? It's because 
I always require my classes to be active and speak up. I love it. I can see their names on the little Hollywood squares. Right. That yeah, so I, call them. I call them and that I, too. Yeah. Right. And I call on them and I break them up into what's called breakout rooms where I can put four and five and six together to work over problems I give them that are based on the readings that we've done. And I think they're also enjoying themselves. It's what we call synchronous, meaning that I open up the Zoom room and they come in as opposed to asynchronous, which is where I record a lecture and then they listen to it at a later time. I'm not as much a fan of that because I like the interaction that teaching affords. If you're the kind of teacher who encourages it, who invites it, and who wants students to participate. So I don't think it's necessarily an awful thing at all, but I do think that there are ways to do it well and ways to do it less well. In general, I think we all find Zoom to be a taxing platform. The younger the child, the more taxing it is because children need to interact not just face-to-face as on Zoom, but they need to interact with people in real time. A friend of mine who I bike with told me that she was worried that her first grader had learning problems because the child had a real hard time focusing on the teacher's asynchronous lectures. And I suggested various playful things that she could do with her grandchild after the teacher was finished that could help the child come to appreciate what the teacher was saying and be more active and agentive in her own learning. And I'm thrilled to report that it seems to have made all the difference and that the child is very proud of herself now. It is a very, and the kid was in first grade, it's a very difficult thing for young children to concentrate and focus when something is online. And I hope that the quality of that online teaching gets better and better as teachers become more used to it and can project many times their wonderful personalities over the Zoom chat to help keep kids interested and hope that they learn even more tricks, as it were, to keep kids going. But at the university level, it's a, it's a whole different thing. You know, you could like throw a phone book at, a, at an adult and say, memorize two pages, right? Yeah. They could do it because grown-ups have what we call metacognition, meaning that we can think about our own learning and manipulate it to our tastes. Yeah. But you know, little kids can't do that. And they are learning it little by little as they go along. And Zoom is not tremendously helpful in that arena. I'm sure. That's a wonderful distinction, thank you, that you've made between the capacities of young children and those who are, for example, college students and adults. Yeah. You've said a lot of really helpful things here, Roberta, but this question I'm going to ask you will probably be the one where you can share your most valuable tips. Among other things, your projects, your books, such as Becoming Brilliant, What Science Tells Us About Raising Successful Children, and Einstein Never Used Flashcards, I love that title, 
focus on how to raise our preschoolers to learn better and be more successful in life. Can you please share with our listeners some of your best tips on how they, whether they are parents, maybe their aunts and uncles or grandparents, what are some of the most powerful, important things that you have learned as an expert on this over the years to take those babies as they're growing up into their formative years and set them off on the right path? It's a tall order. but we we've talked about four of the principles of learning and that's the how of learning those principles now i can tell you the what of learning okay the what of learning is what we review in our book becoming brilliant and anybody who's interested can also get the how and the what from a recent white paper we wrote for the Brookings Institution. So we have to think of school and life as more than content. The emphasis in school has been on content. And, you know, to some extent that's appropriate, but it ain't the whole ball of wax. We have to think about how there are other skills that our children need to know to become caring, creative, confident citizens who care about others. And we call these the six C's of which content is only one. Okay. So we talk about collaboration. There is no job in America today or the world where collaboration will not sometimes be required. And to be able to collaborate, you have to be able to take the perspective of the other. And if you don't learn to take the other's perspective and not to say dumb things like, oh, that's stupid. I don't want to do that. I mean, that's going to make you a lot of friends. That's going to make you a good collaborator. Okay. So the first is collaboration. The second is communication. And communication builds on collaboration and is fueled by it in turn because You must learn how to write, how to speak, how to speak persuasively, and how to say things in a way that doesn't get people's ire up. You will notice that communication and collaboration are essential for a good marriage, for a good partnership, regardless of gender. I don't care. Content is then the third skill. And of course, we need that. We also need to be able to engage in critical thinking. We need to be able to solve problems to figure out what information we need. How do we go about getting that information to write that paper? Children should be encouraged to ask questions. There should be no questions that are off limits. There should be no topic that's off limits because you want your children to be inquisitive, curious humans and to recognize what they want to learn and what they don't know. So critical thinking starts early when we encourage question asking. Creative innovation comes from collaboration, communication, content. Creative innovation is when we take old stuff that we know and combine it to make new stuff. And creative innovation is not something that only artists and musicians do. We do it all the time when we solve problems at home, for example. So we want to encourage our children to think creatively. And finally, we want our children to have confidence. A synonym for that is grit, perseverance. We want them to know that failure is not the end. 
You don't just, you know, take your toys away and go home. You can learn from failure. There are so many things. You know, Edison, Thomas Edison was approached by a reporter when he was trying to invent the light bulb. And the reporter said something like, well, I guess you've failed at this. And Edison said, I beg your pardon, young man. I have not failed. I have found 100 things that will not do the job. (laughs) And it could be the 101st that does. So failure is the way that you learn and continue. So these are the things that we wish schools would emphasize more. And we are actually working with the Godfrey Lee School District in Michigan, and now we'll be working with the state of New Hampshire to help teachers and children learn the six C's and learn how to bring them into the classroom. Our preliminary data from the school district in Michigan suggests that when the emphasis is on the six C's, teachers report much greater satisfaction in their jobs. And most importantly, it gives achievement on standardized tests a boost. It's amazing. So you know how we talked about the summer slide. Children who were in classrooms in which the curriculum was organized around the six C's experienced significantly less summer slide than their peers who were not. They also did better on standardized tests in reading and math. So we're on a roll and we're going to help New Hampshire bring this in and hopefully other schools. That's great. I just want to ask you a couple of quick things in the short time that we have left. First of all, the name of that school, the one school was Godfrey Lee? Yes, the Godfrey Lee School District in Michigan. Okay, now this is going to be, I think, easy for you, but yet you could devote so much more time to it. In about a minute or so, what would you say is the mistake that a lot of parents make in raising the very young children? And what would you say is the most important thing they could do when they've got a baby up to five, six years? Love them. Love them. That's it. Love them. Give them your undying love and support, it's their foundation for life. Respond to them. Be sensitive to them. Don't scare them. And these are three characteristics, responsivity, sensitivity, and not being scary, that help children form a firm, what we call attachment to their caregivers, meaning a firm bond to their caregivers. Mary Dozier at the University of Delaware has created a training that teaches parents who do not do this naturally how to do it. And it makes an enormous difference in children's lives. After loving the kid and being sensitive, responsive, and not scary, it's just a question of playing and talking and taking your child to exotic places like the supermarket, Um, (laughs) you know, helping them experience the world, following up on their curiosity and interest, talking to them about things that they want to hear about. The world is their oyster. And to the extent that you help them learn about everything that they're interested in, you advance the cause of your child's intelligence and capability and readiness 
for school. It's not hard. It's not hard. Those are great tips, Roberta. And I know earlier you pointed out about when the parent is not making eye contact with the child, when maybe they're on the phone and they're trying, pretending to have a conversation, that could be very damaging, right? Uh, Well, very damaging is kind of strong. Okay, not but certainly the cell phone gets in the way. We've done studies on this, and we know that interruptions by the cell phone to the kinds of joyful interaction children of the age of two and their parents are having gets in the way of children's learning. And I'm sure that it gets in the way of interacting with infants and older children. You do yourself a favor if you turn your cell off when you are with your children and your spouse. Think about that. Absolutely. You heard it here, folks. If you didn't hear it already in the past, great tips. Again, this is just terrific. You mentioned your blog. You mentioned the white paper. We've talked a little bit about your books. You're involved in a number of projects that you alluded to. How can our listeners find out more about you, your books, your projects, your blog, your white paper, all this stuff? My website. Everybody in America has a website now. Yeah, even (laughs) I do now. You're right. Everybody, everybody. And and if they go on my website, if you the only thing they might not remember is my last name because it has multiple syllables. Golinkoff, G-O-L-I-N-K-O-F-F. If they go on my website, they will find all of these things that they can download in some cases, and in some cases follow up by clicking on the links. And it would be your website address, Roberta, would be robertagolinkoff.com? Well, not .com necessarily. If they Google Roberta Golinkoff, my website will come up. Okay, so that's Roberta Golinkoff. Google that and uh, G-O-L-I-N-K-O-F-F. Right. Okay. Roberta, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, you're welcome. And as I said to you before we got started, what you focus on is just so important and will always be so important. And your passion amazes me over all these years. I think it's just fantastic. Thank you so much, Jeff. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to this episode of Looking Forward. I hope you've enjoyed it and learned something. I also hope that you'll tell others about our show. If you have any comments or ideas for future episodes, please contact me at my website, Jeff dash ostroff.com that's j-e-f-f dash ostroff o-s-t-r-o-f-f dot com this is jeff ostroff inviting you to join us again next time on looking forward